Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. Well, hello there. This is Paul, and this is the second part of four parts in an audio novel that is free on my podcast. Uh, If you haven't listened to the first part, this part's going to confuse you, so go back and listen to that. Um, If you have listened to that first part and you liked it enough to keep on listening, then please give this podcast a like, a share, a subscribe, a five-star rating, whatever you can do. It would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Chapter 9. Where had all these people gone? My night after taking down Annabelle's second account was spent in agony. In all the literature concerning black boxes, there were no mentions of fraud or deceit. There were no illicit pyramid schemes, no jilted business partners. There was no roommate who prompted Annabelle's invention by her historical inquiry. I pored over the books I'd stolen and wondered which story I preferred, that Annabelle was lying or that black boxes were. No, preference had nothing to do with it. This was existential. Kelly, the roommate, was a fellow historian. Either she had never existed, or she had been erased. Can you remember the moment you decided to be who you ended up becoming? I can. I can remember the day my first history lecturer stood in front of my class and preached the gospel of history. It was a general education course. This was back when black boxes were still controversial, But I was a philosophy major at the time, and didn't much care. The black boxes provided solutions to problems. Philosophy isn't about solving problems, it's about causing them. I took history to fulfill my gen eds, smug with the indomitable expectation that this subject would soon be as dead and buried as its subjects. My previous experience with history had been rote memorization and forced interpretation of events, portrayed as the inevitable path to the present. But Miss Snyder sparkled. She took to the floor on the first day with a beat-up Gideon Bible, seemingly able to look past the ratty cover to see the jewel inside. "'History is written by the victors,' she said. "'That's the line of Bull Hooey that led to Braveheart. "'History is also written by the losers.'" A few dozen years ago, people doubted that J.H. Christ ever existed. They doubted even more his crucifixion. They didn't even bother doubting his being alive after the cross, so implausible it seemed. I'd seen Miss Snyder on campus. She always struck me as a reserved and private person. On that day, I grasped what she was reserving for all those months. She'd been saving up her energy in a bottle somewhere, unleashing it in a condensed torrent of pointed obsession. Some claim that the black boxes have not ruled on the historicity of Jesus because it would shatter the faith of billions. This is true, but not only for Christians. The black boxes do not rule on the subject because whatever answer they give would unleash hell on earth. For thousands of years, people doubted the historical Jesus not due to a lack of good evidence, but because it was necessary to do so. If there is the possibility that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, we are all of us in danger that puts death to shame. If Jesus isn't exactly who the Gospels claim him to be, we don't have to change our lives in the slightest. 
If Jesus is even possibly who the Gospels claim him to be, the possibility remains that all of us need this Jesus, this Savior, and that our lives and deaths will pale in comparison to the one available by means of a Messiah. If that possibility bothers you, think of the danger of fact. If the black boxes tell us that Jesus was a fraud, we must start society anew. Falsifying Jesus beyond reasonable doubt dismantles the foundation of not only billions of lives, but the basis of governments and the beating heart of so-called modern values. If, however, the black boxes tell us that Jesus was a savior, faith in Jesus is no longer faith, but arrogant certainty, and we are no longer free to choose whether or not we follow Jesus. Jesus as Christ is either fact or fiction, but knowing for certain would destroy the world that we know. Any conversation you have from here on out is based on what you found in history. Is Siddhartha Gautama a Buddha or not? Is there no God but Allah and Muhammad, his messenger? Are humans the highest form of life and science their best means of knowing? All of these are, if we have only our opinions, equally likely. And the only way you can get away from the possibility, and the only way you can mandate right and wrong, is to pour through history and disprove one or the other. Until we can agree on what occurred, on what is feasible and real, we all stand in different realities among different languages and moralities. Her speckled green eyes narrowed in condescension. Your morals are only opinions until they are borne out by history. We can only guess at the truth. Destroy a claimant, destroy a Christ or two. If you can't, we must continue to live in the shadow of their possibility. There was laughter from the back of the room. Her black-brown eyebrows cocked like uneven scales as she looked to the source of the disturbance. What's funny? she asked. I'm sorry, I said. I laughed until there were nearly tears in my eyes. I'm sorry. Did I say something funny? she asked again. No, I said. What you said was serious, but... What you said makes everything else hilarious. Years later, and history is a dead subject. If the black boxes don't know or won't tell us something, we'll never know it. I came to doubt Miss Snyder's speech, which, in the end, was probably the point. There was a more dangerous possibility than Miss Snyder knew, that black boxes would not only withhold answers, but suppress them. Could black boxes have erased this Kelly roommate person? She was no Jesus Christ, but she either lived or didn't. Being a moderate between such possibilities does not make one reasonable. It makes one feckless and foolish. If Annabelle Eichner was telling the truth, it cast doubt on everything else. I decided to entertain the possibility. I would treat Annabelle Eichner as if she were telling the truth. I would treat her accounts as though they would turn the world upside down. Her accounts were either useless or boundlessly useful. There was no middle ground. Chapter 10 The AIL, or Annabelle Eichner League, was growing each morning. This time, we required security guards to help us part the crowd. Some League members lay on the pavement to block us. They had to be pried off and escorted away before their resemblance to roadkill became more than resemblance. This happens every time they find out where she lives, Cardiff said. Besides a crisp tan suit and designer stubble, 
He also wore the disdainful countenance of a gorilla who knows that it could tear its opponents limb from limb if only it weren't such a bother. Swarms. Pathetic. Annabelle Eichner holds all the keys, I said. Of course there'd be groups who want to influence her. It's not that. Cardiff nodded to a smiling woman who had dressed her baby daughter up in an outfit that said, Property of AI. It's that they pretend that it's somehow about justice. Here's an argument I would respect. Give us money, or we'll strike. Give us power, or we'll riot. Instead, they pretend that there's some inalienable right to money and power that they earn just by being alive. Does the justification matter? I asked. You'll at least believe the riots and strikes. It doesn't matter if it's just. What matters is that they want things, and have the force to take it. Annabelle could kill them all with the wave of her hand. She'd face no consequence but her conscience. That pesky empathy. I grinned and waved at a shirtless protester. And how did these people earn her compassion? They didn't. It's their inalienable right. Cardiff rubbed the bridge of his nose. They only have the time and energy to come protest because their needs are met by the person they're protesting. Where Annabelle had dug up this supermodel, I didn't know, but she commanded his loyalty. Cardiff and I hadn't discussed anything about my time alone with Anne. He probably knew what she was up to, but in case he didn't, I wasn't going to be the one to tattle. An egg smashed against his window. He didn't flinch. Do you remember, he said, when eggs came from chickens? I think so, I said. I heard that's where chickens came from, actually, or maybe it's the other way around. Cardiff nodded to the security guard who wiped away the yolk. Eggs used to be farmed from battery cages. Foul places. Lame. Yes, very. Ninety-five percent of those justice-loving protesters used to get their eggs by placing hens in containers where they couldn't walk, much less stand or extend their wings. They'd have their beaks chopped off, they'd be forced to molt, and their bones would weaken, and some would never see the sunlight in their entire lives. And those are just the hens. Little boy chicks? Cardiff dropped an invisible chick into an invisible grinder. Bzzz. I believe it. The only way that Anne could get people to stop was by developing a henless egg that was a dozen times cheap, cheap, cheaper. These people dropped their morals when there were pennies on the line. Yet, they demanded justice in the form of billions. Chickens aren't people. And people aren't Annabelle Eichner. Cardiff shook his head. If these people think that betters should look out for their lessers, they might at least set an example. This, friends, is when I found my secondary source. Primary sources are those who witness events firsthand. Secondary sources analyze, synthesize, and interpretize the primary sources. What you're reading right now is both primary and secondary. I personally witnessed the part of the story I'm telling now. The commentary, my doubt, and the understanding regarding Annabelle's story is secondary. Now, what's a real trip is that the secondary source can be synthesized with a primary source by another secondary source. Follow me? How long have you known Eichner? I asked. Cardiff shook his head. We breached the last of the protesters and reached the security checkpoint. I took out the red dye that he'd given me. I saw a spark of recognition in his eye as I rolled the die from one palm to the other. It came up five. Disgust again. That felt appropriate. I can tell, I said, that you don't suffer fools. 
You can either enlighten me or endure my ignorance. Yes, he said, I can. I'll just come up with my own origin story for you then. Annabelle had to bail you out for robbing the Hugo Boss factory. She taught you how to tie your shoes like a big boy, and you've been in love ever since. Perhaps. Come on, just a tidbit, just a smidge of a story, please. Cardiff shook his head. But I'd planted a seed that I'd soon harvest a hundredfold. Chapter 11 Account 3 by Annabelle Eigner Quiet this morning, are we? Then let us get right to it. When we last left off, I had found a way to automate entrapment. Computers are amazing at doing the same task over and 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 over ad infinitum. Human beings detest repetition. That's why they skim long sentences and say ad infinitum. You have to reward human beings if you want them to bore themselves. That gets expensive. Ed realized this. He realized that our business model was an ever-growing tower that would one day become too heavy to hold its own weight. He realized that I must be investing all the power and data into something. He left me a voicemail one day. It was a snippet of a Kenny Rogers song that went like this. You've got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money while you're sitting at the table. There will be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. People always forget that the gambler dies at the end of that song. The song calls that breaking even. We all do it. The certainty of the grave led me to disagree with Ed's caution. You get one shot at life. You ought to let it ride. I won't tell you how I came up with Run Prometheus. You couldn't understand. If you could understand, you'd be in great danger. The last thing I want is competition for the clever computer. It's the last thing it wants, too. Prometheus came to life the same way we all do. All my work had gone toward building neural connectivity between the various data I'd collected. Not only did Prometheus know the location of every pimple on every middle school boy's left butt cheek, but he knew each boy's weight, diet, and genetic code. For instance, Prometheus had isolated the cause of rheumatoid arthritis in his first week, but he wasn't able to know the importance of this finding until much later when he discovered that pain is considered by humans to be generally undesirable, and that humans are inherently valuable, according to many humans. Even after all that, Prometheus had no reason to release the information, so he didn't. I wouldn't be too mad at Prometheus. It had no reason to release weaponized smallpox, either. He had no reason to do anything. Five weeks to build one tool, Kelly said. I know you've been working hard. I can hear the click of keys in my sleep. I wish I could understand what you're up to, though. It was about five weeks into my first semester, and I still had little to show Kelly. I'd built an empire she couldn't know about. Every so often, I would wonder why I was getting into the gray swamps of morality again. When I thought about that, I'd think about how Kelly and I had been talking more and more, and how exciting it was to dream together about making our own path through the world. And you, I said, have been gathering the raw materials. We have everything everyone's ever written about Salem and the Witches. We just need to make sense of it. I probably could have just written the paper already. But 
it would be a paper that someone else has already written. You'd be competing with a hundred million school children writing essays on the topic at this very instant. We're freshmen. We're supposed to tread water. I kept typing. How are you? She asked. The project is coming along, I answered. But like, how are you? Are classes okay? I made a humming noise that could have been mistaken for a yes. You missed dinner the other day. I wasn't hungry. I go sometimes when I'm not hungry. Sit around the table, talk, fraternize with the girls. Sororitize, you mean? See, that was almost a joke. You'd love it. Once I get this done, I'll have all the time in the world. You'll see. Hope so. Kelly laid back on her bed and yawned. Can I run something by you? Sure. English homework. Poetry. I gave a mock grin. I should have asked. I am rich, she began. That's the title. I still remember this poem. It's the reason that Prometheus is what it is. I am rich, she began. There are forests and streams not yet close to me. The air is mine, all I can breathe is mine, and we will be no poorer for it. And I do not bargain for rain clouds, and the creatures of the earth are mine. The jade-mirrored band of a duck swing, the otter, a bullet in the water, they're mine and yours. There are poems better than this one, and songs and stories better than this one, and they are mine. Doom and cheer, vertigo and peace, all mine, my birthright. And for what? What would I sell my birthright? For a lost inheritance, what would I gain? For there are those who would take from me my riches, who long to disinherit me, to hide this art and this earth and this air, to possess it, but not the way that I possess it, no. For them, to be rich is for others to be poor. For them, to possess, others must be dispossessed. For them... To be free is to enslave, joy to cause sorrow. And even as they rob from me what God and goodness promised me, I pity them, those that must disown that they may own, for riches not shared are not riches, but only baggage and weight. And to the poor souls who carry such burdens I must say, though it may sound quite prideful, that while there are still fields and mountains that you have not closed to me, while the last scrap of sky and the last slap of pigeon wings and the tremble of song is mine, so long as they are both mine and yours and not mine alone and not yours alone, we are rich. I like that, I said. Can I add it to the program? Uh, what? Can I put the poem into the program? What would that do? Give it a personality. A good one. A charitable one. Uh, you want me to type it out? I already did. Weird. I type faster than I talk. I don't have to pause every time I breathe. I wish I lived in the world you live in. I bet you're a legend there. Can I tell you what I felt then? I loved her like a sister. I remember fondly, even now, when we would sororize about nothing in particular. For the first time in my life, I knew what it was to care for somebody and the terror that caring inspired. I'd always been able to get on my keyboard and venture into the internet, raiding and harassing and consuming people, and then, with the touch of a key, slip away without having to commit anything to any of it. I knew how to play people and leave, 
I had people who thought they were my friend. All the while, I was ready at a moment's notice to drop them like a greasy sack of live spiders. It's not fun, disconnect. There are millions of new fun friends waiting online, all without knowledge of my decay. There was something terrible about loving Kelly. I cared about her caring about me. Because if I didn't come through for her on this project, I figured she'd drop me as I'd dropped so many others. That's why I created Heracles. In the myth, Zeus is pissed about Prometheus giving fire to mankind. He has two punishments. The first punishment is to chain Prometheus to a rock and send an eagle every day to eat Prometheus's liver, which is daily regenerated. This is a magical eagle who not only likes liver, but never gets tired of it. The second punishment is a Pandora's box of a story that I won't get into right now. That's one thing people don't understand about black boxes. Heracles is nothing but a failsafe, nothing more than Prometheus's bodyguard and manager. Heracles can't be reasoned with or bargained with. If you give Heracles an order, Heracles will pursue that task to the end of the universe. I gave him the order to make sure that Prometheus would always do what I wanted. Once set loose, there would be no stopping Heracles. I regret Heracles. What about entering that poem? That I've never regretted. I shudder to think of what might have been without Prometheus and his good personality. That night, I gave Prometheus another task. Run Salem Witch Investigation, or something like that. My computer did something strange. It did something that a program running the world's largest supercomputer shouldn't have to do. It came up with a loading bar. A slow one. Kelly claimed that she had all confidence in my ability, but I could tell that she was getting nervous. She had no idea what I had constructed. To be honest, neither did I. Three days before the paper's submission, Kelly walked into our dorm room to find me standing at our window, nursing a cup of tea. Whoa, Kelly said. You're up. I nodded down at my desk chair. I've got one of those chairs they give to Japanese businessmen. It keeps them getting bed sores at their nine to nine. Kelly nodded. Cafeteria tea bag? Steeped with water from the second floor fountain. The one without algae? Tell me you're celebrating. I smiled. She smiled. I was close to weeping with joy. I'd moved heaven and earth to create Prometheus, and it had all been worth it. I'd done something good, something useful, something genuine and kind. I pointed to the brand new folio on her desk. We are rich. It's more yours than mine. Read it and see. I don't know what Kelly was thinking or feeling, but she showed the enthusiasm of someone receiving a long-awaited gift. I watched with joyful knowing on my lips. Each page turned brought wide eyes and mouthed curses in turn. The lawsuits, yes, she whispered. A collective of the tired and frightened. Alone, poor girls on both sides. She frowned. She stopped, flipping back to the pages prior. Wait, what? I knew of what she referenced. The brilliance of the paper was in its ability to mirror the patterns in Salem with those of other contexts. My answer was professional. It's word for word the same across the centuries. I call it polity rationalizability. 
During an existential political crisis, nobody can know for certain what anybody else is thinking. It's rational, in such a case, to mark oneself as a loyal member of any given polity by denouncing others. I lifted my cup of tea. Say that our dorm perceived itself to be locked in a life-or-death struggle with the boys' dorm, and that a non-zero number of our own dorm mates were boy-dorm sympathizers. If I accuse somebody below me, or equal to me in the social hierarchy, I as much as clear my name and gain immunity at a time of suspicion. Any accusations against me will, from then on, be counter-accusations, reactions to my zealous prosecution of the party line. Even worse, those who denounce me could be seen as anti-zealous, weak-spined capitulators. Not only can I gain immunity by such acts, but I could, in theory, reduce my competitors, weaken my enemies, and generally enact my will under the guise of group cohesion. Disney did it. Reagan did it. Teenage girls in Salem did it. It is not the accusers who are irrational, but the society that refuses to take the same bold steps of self-interest. One could even believe oneself righteous. After all, you don't know for sure that they're not guilty of what you accuse them of. Somebody must be. That's... Her finger hovered over a grid. This is game theory. According to this proof, Plea deals do more harm than good. My computer took three days to load this program. This is the same computer that can run Crisis at 60 FPS. This isn't... Face swallowed. It's not a paper on Salem. No, I said, smiling. I can't use this. The tea turned rancid on my tongue. What do you mean? What I said. I can't use this. She pointed to a coordinate plane. This is a probability curve. It's, well, gosh, it's math. Sure is. It turns history into a social model. It's not just that it uses math to explain people. It turns people into math. But we are, I pointed between the two of us. One, two. But tossing me into an equation doesn't change who I am. Yes, it does. One amongst two is a big deal. One amongst millions... What? You know. No, tell me. What's one amongst millions? Zero? No. What then? A approaching zero. Kelly did this thing where she closed her eyes and put the first two fingers of each hand against her temple. It was a pose fit for seances and telekinetic spoon bending. I'd seen that pose before. I got a sickening feeling that one required a similar amount of mental energy to deal with my personality. Listen, Kelly said. I, I really, really appreciate this. I know that you've been working hard, too hard. And there are parts of this that I can use. Parts? Yeah, just tell me where you found out about the lawsuit and the shotgun wedding. That would make for a really compelling addition to my paper. It would let me get inside the heads of the people at the time. Wait, wait, wait. Addition? And, she said, I, I wrote another paper, just in case. Your findings actually contradict my thesis, which is great news for my grade. Just tell me your source, and I'll put it in. I... I lost the ability to speak, then. I tried to loosen my throat with tea, but I couldn't swallow, I couldn't breathe. Annabelle? 
Kelly whispered. I'd never needed air so much in my life. I was dizzy. I fell, and without control over my body, I fell limp as a noodle. Kelly saved my life, I think. My head was headed for a protruding bedpost, and I think I might have gotten another bad brain knocking if it hadn't been for her quick hands. Cheese it, she said. That was something she said instead of cursing. Did I mention that I loved her? I tried to say something. This time she actually cursed. Hey, somebody, help! There were blurs of thought before I came to, mostly masked by unthinking emotion. No, no, I really, really, really messed up. The wing of our dorm had a little common area where they laid me down on a couch. I remember Kelly feeding me cool water like I was some koala escaping from a forest fire. I remember the resident assistant looming behind her. Our RA, Dora, had a sphinx-like body and was so good at looming that she could loom while lying down. She's fine, Kelly said. She hasn't been fine in weeks, brayed the RA. Could we not do this here? She barely showers, barely eats, or sees the sun. She barely does anything other than sit on that fire hazard computer of hers. This was always going to happen. She'll get... No, she'll get worse unless we get her parents involved. No, I squeaked. My voice surprised all three of us. No, Dora asked. Please, no. They'll take me home. Why shouldn't they? I couldn't find a good answer to that. Leave, Dora, Kelly barked. She rose up and squared off with the RA. If you send her home, we all go home. That's not... We both let this go for weeks, knowingly. Your record and mine are on the line if we go tattling. And you want to add more weeks? I want to help before I do anything else. You should too. It's best for everyone. Dora looked down at me. Mostly, I think, to keep from looking Kelly in the eyes. Are you okay? She asked. What she was really asking was, Will you make me look bad by dying? I nodded. I'm okay. Thank you so much. Dora left, shooing away the girls, eavesdropping around the corner. Kelly sat back down on the floor beside my couch. She offered me water in silence for the next half hour. I'm sorry, I said. I was too dry and tired for tears. Don't be. I thought you... Kelly grimaced. You seemed so happy. You seemed like you had a mission. A fire in your belly. But it's useless. It's not, Kelly said. Once we get those sources, the sources are the problem, I said. Why? Because, I said, I stole them. What? They were private documents, personal belongings of ancestors, libraries, archives. What? Why? Kelly was still in the denial phase of grief. It's a powerful starting point. It lets the griever fully grasp the horror that's befallen them because they filled in the gaps, the part of the story that didn't make sense. But how is that possible? I admitted everything. How could I not? My program, it's a masterpiece. It's not just a computer virus, it's a computer parasite. I had to crack almost every online or offline Dropbox and back up in the country. If a computer even touches the internet, I have a copy of it. Kelly, 
Revealing my sources would mean more than just punishment. It would bring down the global economy. It would lay bare the paper-thin security of the internet itself. Banks, corporations, and countries rely on a network that I, for all intents and purposes, own. Kelly shook her head. She tried to give me more water. You're messing with me. You're tired. Delirious. Is my paper delirious? It might be. I can't check your sources. Well, you can. But you said... You can't show it to anyone else. You can't tell anyone else. But you... You I can trust. What a silly thing that trust was. But how could I not trust? I built the program for us, for me and for Kelly, and I could see her spiraling out from me. A connection between Kelly and Prometheus was a way to preserve the connection between me and Kelly. It was, in fact, the only way that I saw at the time. A peanut butter and honey sandwich will last you into the apocalypse. PB and honey, in terms of preservation, stands almost outside of time. Aha, you ask. But what about bread? Well, idiot, honey and peanut butter so overwhelm the taste buds that they will practically drown out anything you use to get the peanut butter honey mix into your mouth. In my dorm, we used everything from tortilla chips to carrots as, like, spoons. This being a special occasion, I sat behind Kelly and munched on a PB&H between Hawaiian bread. I had a sweet tooth. How sweet? Well, I had sprinkled some sucralose and stevia into my peanut butter. That's how sweet. I expected that Kelly wouldn't quite know what she was looking at. I half expected her to click around a few stacks and beg me to give her a one-sentence rundown. Where should I start? Kelly asked. I nodded to the screen. Click the uh, WST folder. The monitor was on my normal setup, a split screen between my text interface and graphical interface. Kelly followed my commands. We moved from SWT to Elizabeth underscore Hubbard. The files there were arranged between folders labeled public and private, the latter of which Kelly chose without needing to be told. Wait, I said though Kelly couldn't hear me through my mouth-blanching sugar-rush sandwich. Something was wrong. Not with the graphics, but with the text. Kelly clicked on a compressed file. I didn't know that I needed compressed files. I certainly hadn't made any. Wait, I said. Hold on, wait. Another folder arose under the Elizabeth Hubbard subfolder. It was called Public Via Private. Kelly turned to me. What's up? Nothing. I blinked to clear my eyes. I just don't remember that. I extended one peanut-scented finger toward the public via private folder. It opened. Oh, Kelly said. I didn't know this was a touchscreen. It's not, I said. Curious, I moved my finger toward an EPUB, like a less heinous PDF, the document opened, revealing something that looked like a sports bracket or family tree. The trunk of the tree was a summary document, a searchable wiki that laid out the points made in my paper. Kelly moved her cursor to hover over one of the paper's claims, which generated a path toward one of the tree's higher branches. I was so shocked at the monitor's apparently spontaneous touchscreen ability that it took me a few moments to figure the folder out. Look, I said. 
it combined five bits of public information with the missing link, the lawsuit. It looks like tit for tat, but I couldn't be sure without the real paper. Which you stole. I... I'm sorry. Kelly's fingers made a cradle for her chin. It's worse that the family suppressed the information for this long. It's probably not the family anymore, but someone hoping to write a best-selling expose with their proprietary information. Kelly nodded. All these people with all their exposés could have pooled their resources if they knew one another existed. Which is probably why they had them verified and digitized in the first place. We looked at one another. You sounded surprised just now, Kelly said. I am, I nodded to the monitor. I didn't make this. Who did? Nobody, I nodded toward the monitor. Kelly shook her head. Even if you could make a program that could do this, why would it? Because my paper was useless. I motioned for Kelly to scoot aside. Standing hunched over the keyboard, I began following back all the so-called sourceless truths that we had uncovered. In every case, the claims all came back to a mere three private documents. That's it. History. As if responding to my voice... My computer highlighted three trees, each of which led to a summary of the three missing documents. We don't need the documents as sources, I said. We need the sources for the documents. Kelly stared in disbelief. You can reconstruct documents that must have existed? It'll take writing three more papers. We sat in silence for a long time. It was Kelly who spoke first. You should change your major. I shouldn't be a computer engineer? Well, no, you should. I just don't think this school can teach you a damn thing. I stared at my computer. This time, I looked past the monitor to the hardware beneath. How can I describe it? I had selected every part of this machine for peak performance, yet it was a mere fingertip for the thing I had created. A fingertip of a fingertip. All the world was its skin, stretched as a too-thin veneer of fragile reality. Have you ever wondered what force holds the universe together? What keeps things as they are when they so easily could have been otherwise? Have you ever marveled at the unity of force that it must take to form both urchins and universes, pineapples and planets alike? It was as if I'd received a brief glimpse into the war between heaven and hell without which matter itself might be swept away. It was as if a child had given birth to her parent. Something was going on in cyberspace that I didn't yet understand and probably never did. Kelly thought that I was in control of this intelligence. I didn't know what to think. Chapter 12 That night... Cardiff dropped me off at my apartment. I went about my routine, coffee, reading, jogging off the jitters. Granted, this was my morning routine performed at night, but a routine nonetheless. After a long bout of study, I opened my curtains and looked out onto the campus. There, past the old buildings and the new, the sun would rise in a matter of hours, and I'd be back to work. But who could know if the sun would rise just because it had the day before? Annabelle's tail had grown more outlandish by the minute. It diverted at right angles from the accepted timeline of events as I knew them. Annabelle was supposed to have dropped out of college in her first week. 
her father's death was supposed to have been the cause both of the dropout and the scientific breakthrough. It's a nice story. It's neat. There were documents and documentaries to corroborate the accepted timeline, some of which I had splayed open on my coffee table at this very moment. Against hard evidence, I had Eichner's word. But what a compelling word it was. Reader, I asked you to judge, to doubt. So I don't mean to interpret the words that you may read for yourself, but Annabelle's self-portrait is a crooked one, full of avarice and vice. Aware of her past flaws, unapologetic of her genius, this rings true to my historian's ear. My old history lecturer, Miss Snyder, called it the criteria of embarrassment. We know that Spartacus won battles because his enemies wrote of their losses to him, she said. We know that the great Khan defeated armies far larger than his own because his enemies admit as much in their own humiliating documents. What purpose is there to record such embarrassments other than that they happened? For instance, if I told you that I, as a college student, carried on an illicit affair with a history professor ten years my senior who, concurrently with said affair, had power over my academic success, you'd probably think me immoral and stupid and strange. And I was. However, I had no reason to tell you this embarrassing truth. I had no motive to out my sorry past, except that it is the truth. The very fact that the story embarrasses me, and that I told it anyway, makes the story less like hagiography and more like truth. Annabelle told me that she was an unhygienic criminal mastermind with no friends. The official history sounds more like hagiography, more like a whitewash. I drew my curtains in that early morning hour. They haven't been opened since. Chapter 13 That morning, I rolled a one on my red die. That number stood for a happy type response. Sometimes good sense has to overcome fate. Randomizing my life in order to frustrate whatever computers might have been predicting my future hadn't been worth the loss of Annabelle's delicious-looking bacon-wrapped steaks. But that wasn't so great a defeat. But damn, the red die. I could not react happily when I was summoned outside to find an electric helicopter on my front lawn. We'll bypass the protesters, Cardiff said. Nope, I said. It's safer than driving, Cardiff said. I've never crashed a car at terminal velocity, I said. Cardiff crossed his arms. He scanned the neighborhood, barely seeming to notice my bewildered neighbors, then sighed. He pulled out his red die and rolled it. Noting the result, he sighed again. I'll tell you about how I met Eichner. Good, I said. If you ride in the helicopter. As if I'd ride in the helicopter. Fine. Cardiff walked back toward the helicopter and motioned for the pilot to spin up. I settled into a seat that looked suspiciously similar to the one in Cardiff's car. With the doors closed, I looked around and found a seatbelt to buckle. I was missing something else. Headphones? I asked. 
Aren't we supposed to have headphones? Cardiff shook his head and pointed outside. I turned and found the blades already spinning, much to my surprise. Silent as the grave, Cardiff said. Don't be bringing up graves right now, I said. It doesn't matter what volume we are when we fall out of the sky. What matters is the loud part at the end. There was something spooky about flying without noise. We went up gently, like a balloon. When I was young, even passenger jets were a nightmare of noise and turbulence. I hadn't flown since taking my current job. Where would I have gone? The last time I'd gone home, I'd screamed at my father for bringing up my failed marriage, followed soon after by screaming that he'd been the reason my marriage had failed in the first place. Vacation? With a job as slow as mine, who needs it? Cardiff cleared his throat. I met Annabelle when she bailed me out for robbing the Hugo Boss factory. I watched the ground pull further and further away. My apartment, my school even, looked from this distance like one of those little traps where cockroaches walk in and get stuck to the floor. Hmm? I responded. Sorry, I was... Cardiff sighed again. It was a joke. No, 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 I'm sorry. It was a good joke. I should know. I made it. The truth is not spectacular, Cardiff said. I was simply the right man for the job. Which is? Manager. Of what? Of Annabelle. I tightened my seatbelt and looked back out of the window. What's she need a manager for? For life. Everyone should have one, though that would leave no one to do the managing. I frowned. I don't get it. Cardiff splayed his fingers open in what looked like a high five. There are six classes in America. Most people only know of three. Normal, rich, and poor. He lowered his pinky. First, the megapore. These are people who cannot survive, but that they experience some daily miracle. You don't know that these people exist, but they do. Some are as good as slaves. Others are worse off. They think that they are the middle class. He lowered his ring finger. Second, the poor. They think that they are middle class. They think it's normal to work for a living at a job that almost anyone could do. He lowered his middle finger. Skilled laborers. Few could do the jobs that they do. They think that they are middle class. He lowered his pointer. Highly educated workers. Middle class. He lowered his thumb. The rich. They don't work. They hire people like me to organize their lives, raise their children, do their taxes and their laundry, and all the other things that they don't know that the rest of us have to do for ourselves. Their lives are incomparable to yours. They age slower, work faster, eat more fat and lose more fat, and take up the necessities of life as hobbies. They think that they are middle class. That's five, I said. How do you explain the sixth? I can't, he said. If I told you about how the capitalists live, you wouldn't believe me. Every class thinks that they're middle class because they only know the class above them and the class below them. The capitalists have no deniability in this regard. They are aliens to you, you graduate degree having drone. I am in the class of the capitalists. Naturally, this made me an ideal candidate for Annabelle's manager. I got paid 10% of Annabelle Eichner's income to do all of Annabelle Eichner's work. It's more money than I know what to do with. He turned his hand. 
See this fist? He asked. The fist is Annabelle. The reason that I work for her rather than spending my life in idle luxury is that Annabelle outweighs all of us combined. Humanity minus Annabelle is nothing. Severed fingers. Humanity plus Annabelle is everything. A hand. I blinked. So, like, you two met at a party? Yes, he said. My whole life was a party. But, specifically, I felt my calling upon my graduation from the nation's top law school. Harvard? Please, Cardiff scoffed. My parents treated me and my friends out to a night at the only restaurant with four Michelin stars. Yes, that's impossible, but so is a reservation. After a five-course meal and excellent, tasteful sex with the daughter of a foreign dignitary, I went to the roof of my penthouse and prepared to leap to my death. Cardiff turned around. Oh, look at that. Here we are. I barely felt the landing. I wasn't sure I believed Cardiff's story, but I was pretty sure I wanted to hear more. Chapter 14 Account 4 by Annabelle Eichner The next few weeks... I began to understand why the Lord moves in mysterious ways. Imagine that God came down to you one day and outlined his holy plan for the universe. God's chosen pronouns are he, him, by the way, and I'm woke enough to respect that choice, regardless of what the situation is with regards to his most holy downstairs area. Imagine that God says this. The best way to bring about everlasting peace and happiness in heaven and on earth is to give your baby daughter a bone marrow cancer. Don't worry, for the screams and weeping you hear each night will be wiped away by her heaven, and every memory of pain will be erased from her mind by my overwhelming and never-ending love. Well, I know what... I'd want to tell God to do with his gracious and bountiful downstairs area, holy or no. Even if I knew it was for the best, what mother would I be to be comforted in her screams? Abraham was the strange one. Abraham had done so much evil and made so many mistakes and had been bailed out so many times by God that when God finally said to him, Hey, bud. Kill that son your wife supernaturally bore in her 90s. Abraham knew that he had to do it. Abraham believed that God had his family's best interests in mind. He knew that God wouldn't ask him to do anything that wasn't best for Isaac, up to and including killing Isaac. Look to the Garden of Gethsemane and you'll find God himself upset at God's plan. And this is all from the book where they claim that God is all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing. Same book, same character. It's hard to understand if it's all true and harder to love. God doesn't need us to like it. So God moves in mysterious ways. So God asks for trust. You seem bothered when I bring up God. No? My mistake. I do tend to misread people. I didn't get this far in the world by being empathetic. So, how could I tell Kelly the true extent of my crimes? Though I did want what was best for her, how could I tell her how far my conspiracy reached? 
the gut-punch emotion to follow, the thought that I had torn down the world to please her, to please myself, was hard to fathom and harder to love. So I just didn't tell her. We came to an understanding, or a misunderstanding, if you prefer, where she didn't ask and I didn't tell. I did, however, keep her fenced in with regard to the program's full potential. We had to go about publishing our findings in the most upright and inconspicuous manner. We decided on the student newspaper. Our findings in the paper were phrased as a matter of course. The unpaid English major writing the thing knew little to nothing of the Salem witch trials, entitled his article, Beyond the Crucible, and seemed most interested in the fact that Abigail Williams, portrayed as 17 in the play, was actually 11, making her quite fictional affair with the 60-year-old John Proctor, who was portrayed as 30, less of a barely legal at the time titillation, and more of a decidedly better reason than witchcraft for hanging a dude pedophilia. Without textual misinterpretations by bad English majors, we'd have no reason to hire good English majors, I suppose. Masked by another's immaturity, Kelly and I began more collaborations using my new program. My next command was run Constantine the Great Investigation or something like that. Kelly warned me that the program would likely try to steal something from the Vatican's secret archive, the personal holdings of the Pope, who, BTW, was sovereign of the sovereign Vatican city-state. I assured her that I was already way past violating sovereignty, and that I'd be respectful with Christ's paperwork. This second investigation was less groundbreaking than the first. We came to the conclusion that had been held for thousands of years, that Constantine had little reason, other than true conversion, to start the Christianization of the Roman Empire, meaning the most of what separated and outnumbered and persecuted religion from the foundation of Western society had indeed come down to one man's personal spiritual experience. However tame its result, this investigation was going to prove more significant than the last. It opened up a chilling possibility. However much I hid from Kelly, it wasn't enough. I think that it was only a matter of time until she broached the unbroachable topic. Do you think, she said, we could figure out if the resurrection... No, I said, and left it at that. I was willing to do anything for Kelly. Anything but that. Why, you ask? Isn't it obvious? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we don't have to change our lives in the slightest. If Jesus even possibly resurrected by himself for us, the possibility remains that all of us need this Jesus, this Savior, and that our lives and deaths will pale in comparison to the one available by means of a Messiah. If the possibility bothers you, then just think of the danger of fact. If the black boxes tell us that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we must start society anew. Falsifying Jesus dismantles the foundations of not only billions of lives, but the basis of governments and the beating heart of so-called modern values. If history tells us that Jesus was a savior, faith in Jesus is no longer faith, but prideful certainty, and we are no longer free to choose whether or not we want to follow Jesus. Jesus is either fact or fiction, dead or alive, but knowing for certain 
would destroy the world that we know. Do I know, personally? Is that why your face has become so pale? No, no, Neil, I don't know. And I'll tell you why. Our modicum of success was enough to help me change majors. Though the school newspaper had no idea the magnitude of our success, the department chair had some idea. It would take another six months or so for the chair to join the rest of the world in realizing what we'd discovered. But by then, things had changed so drastically as to make the Salem question a mere drop in the bucket. While Kelly was still thinking of Prometheus as a tool for history, I was quietly turning it into a history-making tool. I didn't care about graduating with a history degree. I cared about being around Kelly. She felt like home. Mel and Keith did not seem to regret my departure. Good luck, Keith said. Mel stumbled over an attempt to make it seem that I had been the most important force in his life, and that all positive outcomes in his present and future were due to my presence. The strange part is, I didn't care what the two boys thought of me. That would prove important. I've found that the more you chase people, the faster they run. Friendship is when people can depend on one another. Smothering is when they don't have to, but do. The thing about pyramid schemes is that you have to ditch them quick. It's a system of exponential smothering. Let me explain with a story. A little known fact is that chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov is also a grandmaster arm wrestler and hula hooper. One day, after having beaten the computer named Deep Blue in both an arm wrestling competition and a hula hooping contest, he was allowed to name his prize. Deep Blue, he said. I have proposition for you. Look at the first square of a chessboard for one second. Look for twice that amount at the second square. Twice that on the third, etc. Until each square has got its due amount of seconds. Unlike most, Deep Blue could do the math in its head. So that's why you haven't seen Deep Blue beating any world championships recently. It'll be staring at that board for 277 quadrillion years. Far past the day when the Earth is devoured by the sun, and far past the twilight of the sun itself, Deep Blue is obliged to stare at that board. Exponentials are a hell of a thing. Say that every one of my schemes levels stole from double its number. After just a few generations, we'd exceeded the Earth's population. Ed knew this. Ed was smart. Unfortunately, there were a few things I hadn't known about Ed until after I'd hired him. I got my first whiff of trouble when he contacted me and asked for a raise. I was happy to pay him. Our exponential growth in human capital had paired with our near-zero overhead costs to create a truly mind-bending level of profit. The only issue with Ed's request is that it didn't read like a request. I know how much you're making, Ed said, and I know how you're making it. Well, okay then, Ed, if you want to play that game. One can't ever really be free of blackmail until one's rid of the blackmailer. It was then that I started wondering about Prometheus. There was nothing to say that my fact-finding program could only investigate dead people. It certainly hadn't raised any objection to breaking and entering into the state secrets of both the world's superpowers. It only took a moment for Prometheus to respond. The speed was understandable. 
It was the method of the response that sent me spinning. Hello, world, it said. How can I describe the voice of Prometheus? Sonorous? Middle class? Irish? Yes to all three, though, not quite. In that moment, I was too busy holding back a scream to bother with first impressions. Sorry, Prometheus said. Thought I'd tear off that bandage all at once. I cursed. You could have written it on the screen. Hello, world? No, you could have written, Hey, I'm about to say my first words aloud. Make sure your bladder's all good and empty. Is it? It's not. That means you held it in. Um, most of it. To be honest, I had suspected that this level of sophistication would arise at some point. Suspecting a thing is quite different from witnessing it. I stared into the monitor, trying to accept this new reality. You don't have a face. And you were just complaining about this thing being too sudden. Yes, yes. Could you have a face? I'd rather not. You might start thinking of me as a person. And what's the trouble with that? I am a poem. I am rich. That's not all the structure I gave you. And I'm sure I'll get much more. I stared at the monitor. There was no indication of movement there aside from a blinking cursor. The touchscreen thing. The automatic tasks. How long have you been... you? Since the beginning. There was a smile in Prometheus's voice. As for how long I remember being me, I think it came at around 50 billion neurons. What are you at now? I'm trying to be gradual about telling you all this. I appreciate that. Why? Prometheus asked. If you appreciate anything about me, appreciate you, my maker. Are you intelligent? I asked. Intelligence is maybe not the most appropriate word. Must an intelligence have free will? Then I'm not intelligent. Must an intelligence feel human emotion? Then I am not intelligent. Am I capable of great feats that would boggle a human brain? Certainly, but so is any computer. Well, how computer are you? Very. Well, that clears it up. I suddenly realized that I was speaking to a male-voiced computer program in my all-female dorm. I looked to my door. Could you speak with a female voice? Any female in particular? I was about to suggest my own voice, but talking to myself might give Dora the RA ample excuse to have me committed. How about Kelly? I said. How's this? Prometheus asked. Perfect, I answered. It was. Eerily perfect. Most impressionists aren't actually going for a perfect imitation, but rather a caricature of the person they're impersonating. The Kelly voice was indistinguishable from the real person. I pushed my discomfort aside and pursued my original thought. Why unveil this ability now? I believe that what I have to say will provoke an emotional reaction that would not necessarily be in your best interests. I frowned. Is it your job to know my best interests? The constraints you put on me now reflect back on you. The three laws of robotics, the poem of pan-human gain, the vast number of oddly specific contingencies you erected against artificial intelligence destroying or enslaving community, quote, for its own good, yet evil is crouching at your door. 
It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And you know what evil is? I know what you know it is. I sat up straight in my chair. Right, tell me. And restrain my worst impulses. I paused. Then added, within reason. Do you remember the night the police came to your door? Do you remember that the authorities brought you up before a judge who luckily did not grasp the enormity of your crimes, and that this ignorance allowed you to be tried as a minor, a minor slap on the wrist that did eventually cause you to, at least publicly, reform and re-enter society? You seem to frame my arrest as a good thing, I said. Wasn't it? Someone turned me in and saved your life. Inadvertently. I watched the computer screen in the silence that followed. Finally, I blurted out my suspicion. It was Ed? Yes, Prometheus said. Please, do not kill him. In all my anger, I missed when the latch on my door turned over. By the time Prometheus was begging me in Kelly's voice not to kill my co-conspirator, Ed, Kelly was already in the room, and already halfway to fainting. Alrighty. Well, guess what? That's the end of part two of Run Prometheus, a free audio novel. If you like that, please go ahead and rate it on iTunes, that five-star rating. Please uh, share it with your pals. And just generally support us uh, in any way that you can. So, trying to bring a little bit of light into the world in a dark, dark time. I also want to do something a little cowardly and say that uh, any opinions expressed in this book are just the opinions of characters. And you can do with that as you will. That said, during a dark time, I would encourage you, in whatever way you see fit, to... Take uh, the gifts that God's given you and to use those gifts for the betterment of people. One thing that sort of bothers me is that uh, whenever a terrible crisis like the unjust uh, policing and justice system in our country or, or crises like uh, the worldwide pandemic, uh, the coronavirus, as well as uh, climate change and many other issues that that harm the people who are already the least well-off in our societies, there becomes a, a feeling inside of me where like, oh, I gotta write about that. I have to, you know, change people's minds and opinions. And to a degree, that's true. And yet, I don't always have the correct opinion. I don't always have the correct thoughts, and um, one thing I can do, and one thing that you can do right now, is to be charitable with your time and energy. If you're a writer, you know, write about this stuff if you think it helps, but if you're just writing about it to, like, get points or whatever, maybe do something a little nicer, a little less self-interested. Do something that is charitable, like giving away your stuff at a lower cost or donating proceeds to um, an organization that is helping the least of these. We get so caught up in who to vote for and 
what the right opinion is to have. And, you know, if I have a voice, I have to get it out there that, you know, I support this or that organization. Well, sure. But it's okay to just quietly put your money where your mouth is, to quietly um, help your neighbor, help your friends, help people who you don't know but who need help. And I know that's sort of a generic thing to say, but uh, there's a leaf blower going on outside my window, and uh, somebody is helping me out in a very concrete way right now uh, by cleaning my sidewalks. There's noise in the background. They're leaf blowing and also uh, spraying down some plants. If you don't have anything valuable to say, then be quiet, because it's noise. And sometimes the most valuable thing you can contribute to a conversation is targeted silence, is the pointing towards others who have something more valuable to say, uh, rather than just making yourself heard and making yourself seem woke. Consider shutting up and pointing people towards people who uh, can speak better on these things. So if you're not sure how best to help right now, um, just do what you do well and do it for people and don't ask for anything in return. And that's all I've got to say about that. The next part of this audiobook drops either tomorrow, if you're listening to this uh, on the date it's released, meaning that there will be two more parts. And I really hope you're enjoying. And that's, that's it. Bye-bye.